Um, I hope you have a Bible, and if you do, we're going to read from Galatians 2 this morning. Uh, We're going to begin our time by reading the first 10 verses together, and then we'll be diving into all of this chapter, as I believe God has something uh, important to say to us. His Word always has something incredible and inspiring, and I don't think today is any different. Um, So we'll begin. Um, We are in week two of our series in Galatians. If you missed last week, we covered the first chapter. We'll catch you up today, don't worry. Um, But Galatians 2, Paul continues to tell his story. Um, the story of how he became a Christian and what, came, what happened in his life after he became a Christian. It was a little bit different than most of our stories, I think. But uh, Paul continues by talking about um, what happened 14 years after he had received Christ. So the, God, the, uh, the book says in verse number one of chapter two, Then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. I went up by revelation and communicated to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. To whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. For, but from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, <laughs> I like Paul's way of saying that, um, it makes no difference to me. God shows, per, per, God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised, he's talking about Jew and Gentile, had been to Peter, for, who he, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, wish we could do that in today's world, right? Um, that we go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised or to the Jews. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. So a lot to get into today, really interesting text. Uh, Before we get there though, um, have you ever had something that you deeply stand for, someone that you strongly love, something that's tremendously important to you? Have you ever had anything like that or anybody like that? challenged or your feelings for, your convictions for, your, 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 your burden, your passion for, something or someone challenged or questioned, maybe even belittled or ridiculed? Of course we all have. How does that make you feel? Not good, right? Uh, and I'm not talking passively or flippantly. I'm talking to your face, to your friends, on your turf. When somebody comes to you and they try to you know, get in your face about something you love or you stand for, and you didn't even ask for them to do that. Of course, we never ask for someone to do that kind of stuff, do we? Uh, when they do that, we get a little bit defensive. We get a little bit upset. And, and now in a lot of cases, it's wise and it's better to ignore these things. But sometimes it's just hard to let it go, isn't it? Especially if the person or the point that's being contested is a passion or a burden of ours, someone or something for which we're extremely, extremely passionate or carry a heavy burden about. Our instinct is to defend, stand up for, speak out for these passions or these burdens. If we have a pulse, that's what we want to do, right? We do it for our kids. We do it for our family. We do it for uh, different things that we stand for and believe in. Something from the deepest of our being often will not allow us to be silent or to be passive 
or to sit by and watch somebody kind of tarnish something that we care about or love. And, you know, this past week, we remembered the 9-11 terrorist attacks for the 19th time. It's incredible that time has flown that fast. But, you know, 9-11 is a solemn reminder every year of a day when Americans were truly united. You know, Americans of every party, every color, every age, 9-11 was an attack on all Americans, even Americans of Middle Eastern heritage. It was an attack on the American ideal. It was an attack on the American opportunity. It was an attack, whether everyone adheres to them or not, on the Christian values and the worldview that our nation has upheld and defended for years. Every American took those attacks personally, and while we don't hold grudges and it's no use to do that, our response was one of defiance. It was one uh, to those in the world who want to take us down. We had a resolve, and we still have a resilience to continue to stand for life and liberty and opportunity for everybody. The same gut instinct shows up in various ways in our lives. When someone we love, when something that is core to who we are is threatened you know, many enlisted into the service uh, in, in, in the aftermath, in the long shadow uh, that was cast on a generation after 9-11. Just like many before in generations past were gladly willing to accept the selected service call to defend their country because what they believed in was important to them. It was that personal to them. We're in week two of a series that we're calling It's Personal, based on and grounded in and inspired by Paul's letter to the Galatians. The study is called It's Personal because it's personal. It was personal to Paul. It was a very personal letter. It was one of Paul's most bold letters, his most brash letters. If your Bible had bold font, every letter, every word in this letter would be bold printed, I believe. Uh, Paul writes this letter as a defense uh, a defense for several things, defending his faith, defending his calling, and more importantly, to defend the Galatians from something they didn't even realize they were being threatened by. Now, when Paul felt like he was being wrongly represented and that the work of his hands and the work of his heart was under fire and threatened, he put pen to paper. One of the few letters he wrote with his own hands. Most of his letters he dictated. He just preached and taught and people would take notes and they would print them up and they, Paul would sign his name to them because that's how he worked. Galatians is one of the few letters, maybe the only letter that he wrote with his own hand. He says that in the last chapter. Um, so he wrote this with his own hand because he was very impassioned and it was very a personal subject for him a personal matter many believe it's one of the earliest letters maybe the second letter that he wrote as a missionary so maybe you wonder maybe you ask you know how could faith be that important and of course we all love Jesus and we're passionate about our faith but is faith so important could faith be so important that someone might feel like they should defend it when it's threatened or challenged for Paul, it was almost definitely was that that was the case. Paul was so passionate about his faith because he didn't obtain it in a casual, ceremonial way. Not to dismiss any of us, because I'm this way, that came to faith, you know, because we kind of grew up into it. We were raised in church. Paul did not have a story like a lot of us have. As he was raised in church, raised by Christians, you know, born into a Christian home, taught to Sunday school, took to church, and then became a Christian because he realized it was important to him. Paul did not have that story. Mike, many don't have that story. Paul didn't come to faith like many do in a family setting in ideal environments. Jesus literally saved Paul's life. Paul was passionate about it because he was there when it happened. And, and I, I say that as in he was en route to kill Christians when he would become a Christian. 
He realized that he was wrong about Jesus. He was wrong about God and God's involvement in the world. Paul was there when a rebel with blood on his hands was washed clean and given a second chance. I make a point about Paul being there because I hear a lot of people talk about how they received Christ or how they became a Christian, but their lives don't really suggest that anything happened or big happened. And I'm like, were you there when it happened? You know, I asked somebody that one time. That's not a very nice pastor thing to say. I shouldn't have done that. But I was like, hey, you know, you tell me that you're a Christian. Were you there when you became a Christian? Because when you become, when we become a Christian, when we are in Christ, God changes our lives. And sometimes it takes a while for us to grow into our faith and realize what God has done. But when we are in Christ and we come into Christ, no matter what we came from, whether we were awful in sin like Paul or whether we were just lost like anybody else is lost, when we come into Christ, we come into new and better life. Paul was set to defend his faith, but he also was set to defend his calling. Paul carried a tremendous burden because of the calling God put on his life. Um, Acts chapter 9, verse 15, this is what God told Ananias when he sent Paul his way. Let's go to the next one. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name to Gentiles and kings. So God had extraordinary plans for Paul. He didn't just save him from hell. He recruited him for the kingdom of God. Paul didn't just join the faith. He became an advocate for the faith. Not just an advocate, but the greatest advocate the world has ever seen. Back in Galatians chapter 1, there at the end, the, the response to Paul's conversion and Paul's joining the church and Paul's, you know, just missionary mind and heart is, is what verse 23 says, He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. That is such a, a big verse. I can't overstate the gravity of that statement, the importance of this moment in history. When a few years after Acts 9, Paul, an average church member in Antioch, felt the Holy Spirit move and call him. And when he said, whom shall I send? Paul said, here I am, send me. And Paul rose up that day and became the apostle to the Gentiles, anointed by God, a chosen instrument to carry his name to the whole world. He spent the rest of his life going from town to town across Greece, Greece and Rome, planting churches, organizing communities, leading people to Jesus, putting leaders in place like Titus, like Timothy, and then leaving those towns for another one. The reason why we're here today is because of this model that Paul set in motion. Prior to 47 AD, there were just two churches in the world. By 64 AD, there would be nearly 20, all of them planted by and fostered by the Apostle Paul, all because he was relentless in spreading the gospel, so much so that he would give his life up for the movement. So it's no surprise that Paul would be a little defensive when his faith came under fire, when his calling came under fire. Not that God needed to be defended. God can defend himself. But Paul determined to pour his life out for the kingdom of God. And when the opponents and detractors rose up to talk bad about him and bad about his apostleship and detract from his ministry, Paul understandably was a little bit offended. But honestly, this wasn't only about him. It really wasn't about him at all. This was about the Galatians and many more like them. You see, the movement was so new, and as he took his faith to the regions beyond Judah and Syria, he was in uncharted territory. 
when the, where the Jewish context was hardly a starting point for non-believers. Paul took the message of Jesus to these far-off regions. Many believed, many put their faith in Jesus because of Paul's passion, because of his burden. And now as soon as they had committed their faith to God, false teachers came in, infiltrated these communities, and tried to undo all that God had started. And you have to understand the movement was so young, the Galatians were so vulnerable. An attack on Paul wasn't just on him, but on many who had received and earned the, he'd earned the trust of and forged relationships with. And as these people began to wonder if Paul was legit, they began to wonder if their faith was legit. And now in the least, many he hoped to and no doubt would encounter going forward, that his whole mission field was compromised because of these lies and because of this false message that was being spread. Paul took so seriously and so sacredly this opportunity he had been given. He would confess in 1 Timothy, uh, this is why he was so passionate, that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. I am the chief of sinners. So Paul was so passionate about the gospel because of what it had done to him. Because if God could save Paul, it could save and the gospel could save anybody if God could redeem his life for good and glory he could redeem anybody that's how good the good news was and for that reason Paul would say in Philippians 1 that he was set at defense he was put here for the defense of the gospel for a lot in a lot of ways we have the Bible so buttoned up and together because of because of Paul's defense for and commitment to taking this message to a world that was so unchurched and was so, it was so foreign to them. Now, why would Paul be at defense for the gospel? Why would he say in Galatians 1, verse 8 through 10, that if anybody preaches another message, they should be cursed? Because of the change he'd experienced in his life. Yet, but even more importantly, because there was no other way to God except through Jesus. When Paul references another gospel in verse 6 of chapter 1, he says there is no other gospel, though the message they're preaching is not the gospel at all. You see, for ages, for ages the world had set in darkness, longing for answers and looking for hope. Every tribe and every culture formed their own religion, trying to find some solution to the problem that wasn't just exclusive to them. It was widespread and shared by all of humanity, but each tribe's religion only cared about and tried to attempt to solve that specific problem region's problems unless a universal solution could be found it was really a fool's errand that every little religion was trying to solve their own problems because it was never going to be solved unless the whole world could come under a universal solution it was just perpetuating the problem as each tribe looked at one another as if they were the problem of course it only proved counterintuitive that all these religions continued to try their own ways and never finding the help they were looking for. It, it seemed like humanity was destined to wallow in its own division, and that's what makes Christianity so amazing. Yes, it came from one corner of the world through a single people group, but the message of Jesus was never exclusive to just the Jewish people. It was never meant to be confound to and stuck to the Jewish region and the Jewish religion. From the beginning, it was wide and inclusive. It was far-reaching. Remember how John the Baptist introduced Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When they heard John introduce the Lamb of God as a person, they thought, well, we're looking for a Messiah who's going to make Israel great and make Israel you know, forever and ever the kingdom of the earth. But when they heard him say the world, they stepped back a little bit. 
because they were not expecting a Messiah that cared about, let alone came for the rest of the world. So this was brand new. So that when Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, well, God doesn't love the world. He loves Israel. He could care less about the rest of the world. But no, Jesus says, you have to understand, Nicodemus, this is bigger than just us in this little room, us in this building, us in this country. This is worldwide. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, not just Jewish people, whoever believes can have everlasting life. Yes, Jesus made it clear that as inclusive as his message was, it was still his message. So yes, it was inclusive, but it was still very yet exclusive to him. John 14, he would obviously say very famously, for I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father, God Almighty, except through me. Of course, it would all make sense after he died on the cross. Why would God? Why would God send his son to die on a cross if he was just away? There's no way to answer that question without insulting the very work of Jesus on the cross. Why would God send his son to die on a Roman cross if he was just an option? If Jesus' blood was necessary to wash away sins, if his spirit was necessary to raise us to life, then how could anyone find salvation apart from faith in him? This is what, Paul's, what makes Paul's experience so incredible and why Paul was so passionate. He was persecuting the church of Jesus Christ, claiming to do in the name of God in what's perhaps the greatest testimony to the heart of the Christian message. The message of forgiveness and salvation of the gospel proved true and effective, transformative and powerful to even an enemy of the church. So Jesus was not, un, was not overstating when he said, God so loved the world, this is for the world. For an enemy of the church to be saved by the power of God, by the work of Christ, this truly was something that had universal appeal and power. Paul never got over his transformation, though. He never got used to it. It was always his greatest treasure. It was his most defining moment. So what drove him to be a preacher and a missionary was that sharing Jesus was more than just an opportunity that he had. To Paul, it was a personal obligation of his. Now, you may not necessarily feel like it's a personal obligation, but I can say without I don't think I have to persuade you too much. It is an opportunity that every Christian has. I would go as far to say that it is a personal obligation that all of us have, but that's for you and the Lord to settle. Paul spent the first 14 years of his life in, a, in and around his hometown of Tarsus trying to convince other Jews, other Jews to turn to Jesus. The word from Jerusalem was you should really only share the gospel to Jewish people because only Jewish people are ever going to get this. More on that in a little bit. But he, spent, he went from synagogue to synagogue before finally settling, settling down as a church leader in Antioch. He brought many Jews to faith in Christ and built up, a, built up and helped build up the church at Antioch that was stronger and really more mission-minded than the church at Jerusalem. Something incredible happened during this time, though. Paul led a Gentile to Christ named Titus which made Paul wonder if Antioch was just the beginning of God, what God wanted to do. In hindsight, it's obvious the Holy Spirit was preparing Paul for something big that was about to happen. 
The Antioch church plant was really considered an experiment. And most of the Jewish leaders, if you were to get them kind of, you know, in a low-key setting, they would probably confess to you they didn't think it was going to last. How, can, how in the world could a, church out, could a church survive outside of Israel? How could a church survive with all of these Gentiles coming into it? They smell weird, and they eat funny, and they dress weird, and they don't follow all the codes. How in the world could a church like that last? Home base probably considered it more of an expense than an investment. They would check on it every once in a while. It kept growing and growing, but every time they would hear about Gentiles attending, they would feign enthusiasm, but in the back of their minds, they considered it one step closer to implosion. Why? Again, the Jewish leaders thought that only Jews could really be Christians. They didn't think Gentiles had it in them or ever could become a Christian without first becoming Jewish. The Jerusalem leadership team voted to send Barnabas to look after Antioch to help things from getting out of hand. But Barnabas, Barnabas was ruined by the Antioch experience. He could not go back to Jerusalem after he spent a few weeks in Antioch because the attraction of the church, the zeal of the church, the spirit of the church was so much better and it was so much more mission-minded. He heard of a young man named Paul who was a member of the church and he he took Paul as a protege and thought that the two of them could make a big impact on their community. Even if Jerusalem resisted this model, both Barnabas and Paul, even though the Jews didn't buy it, and even though they were Jews, they still believed that God had a work for the church to do beyond Antioch into the Gentile regions of Greece and Rome. And Galatians is really Paul developing that argument. And it's his articulation of that argument. And, and chapter 2 is really a defense within a defense. Because Paul is telling us the story of the first run-in he had with the brass, with the leadership in Jerusalem. He tells us of the time that when he was called in to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was a little concerned about Barnabas and Paul's mindset and their mission as they began to spread the gospel beyond just the Jewish people to the Gentiles as well. And Paul and Barnabas take Titus with them as exhibit A a Gentile who became a Christian without any connection to Judaism. So here's what's going on. Paul goes to Jerusalem because God started this fire within him for evangelism. Paul was passionate in, about true evangelism. And here's really what causes trouble for the Jewish people and why they were having trouble understanding the bigger picture. For many Jewish Christians, for many Jewish Christians, they understood salvation as an evolution of the faith they already had not a revolution to something brand new. And you understand why that would be simple for them. That would be a simple thing for them because they had come from the Old Testament. The Old Testament pointed to a Messiah. They believed Jesus was the Messiah. So to them, being a Christian was really just an extension of being a Jew. They didn't understand how someone could become a Christian without first becoming Jewish or putting their faith in the Jewish law, the Jewish traditions, the Jewish customs. They struggled understanding how someone could be a Christian without first, put without the Jewish traditions, the Jewish regulations, and the Jewish observations. And you can imagine why this was a little bit of a touchy subject. Paul, even though he was a Jew who loved his Jewishness, he loved his heritage, Paul opposed this, that those things from the Jewish traditions were external, were external things, but Paul argued that salvation was an internal, personal matter that God could bring to somebody whether they knew the Old Testament or not. Now, Paul's not saying the Old Testament wasn't important. He would use the Old Testament to teach Jesus and to bring Christian principles, but not as a means of qualifying people for Christ. 
See, for Paul, if Christ is Savior, he must be allowed to save. If Christ is shepherd, he must be allowed to lead. We can't saddle Gentiles down with things they are not, that, that are not essential for their salvation, things that detract from the greater and better work that Christ wants to do. So therefore, we don't judge Gentiles by their obedience to the commandments, by their observation of the Sabbath, by their assimilation to Jewish code and conduct, nor do we judge one another by these means. We are saved by Jesus, and therefore, we are freed from that old way. Now, if I can, let me make this a little more relevant to us. It's hard, sometimes, it's hard for religious people to remember a time before they were religious. It's just a thing about religion. It's hard for people who are now right to confess that they used to be, because never, we've never been wrong since we were made right. It's hard for right people to confess that they used to be maybe still are, sometimes, wrong. Let me put it another way. When we're cruising along at 60 miles an hour, we're set to ride, we've got our destination in sight, and we aren't going to stop, we don't need fuel, we don't need food, we're just hitting the road. It's hard for us to have patience for those that are still on the jack stands. It's hard for us to have patience that are still in the driveway with the, with the trunk popped. It's hard for us to have patience for those that are at the fuel pump, maybe trying to get up to speed. What was going on here in Antioch and Jerusalem between these two churches? Paul and the Jews, this conflict was crucial to the future of evangelism. Would they preach Jesus plus Judaism, or would they preach Jesus? Would salvation be in Christ alone, or would it require something else, something additional? Did Jesus need some help to get these Gentiles up to speed? Do we need to help them get up to speed? Or is he capable of doing it? Paul came down on the in Christ alone side of things, if you're wondering. Because to him, the gospel was able to do what the law could not do. Paul understood the gospel as the only way to change hearts, the only way to transform lives, the only way to forgive sins and to raise people from the dead. Why would you throttle that? Why would you tamper with that? Initially, when pressed by Paul, Jerusalem said, Yeah, Paul, you're right. But in the back of their minds, they wondered, was this the right thing to do? Because this would be messy. Taking the gospel to people who, who were so raw, so illiterate to all things, God, the Jewish God, would require so much grace. Hmm. Come on, there's part of us, when we talk about sharing the gospel, we often let so many other things get in the way, don't we? We aren't willing to look past somebody's wrong views. We aren't willing to love and walk alongside, turn a blind eye to something that we don't agree with in order to be truly evangelical. Churches often wrongly judge more harshly. Let's go to the next one. Churches often judge outsiders more harshly and hold them to a higher standard than we do insiders. Isn't it true? We talk about how they're the problem when they don't even sign up for what we believe in. And that often keeps us from going to them in an evangelical, Christ-like way. It often cuts the mission short before it ever starts. 
Often the greatest tension and resistance comes not from the outside, but from the inside. Because we aren't willing to wrestle through the messiness that comes and is required to love people and to reach people for Jesus and not first try to change them before they receive the, the Lord. This is completely off the wall, so if you've checked out, come back to, come back to earth for a little bit. This is, this is dumb, but I'm going to tell the story. Um, not really a story. Back in the 70s, there was a movie. I was going to show the clip, but I thought it would be a little bit sacrilegious, so you know, I, try, I have some standards sometimes. I stop short of doing some crazy stuff up here. Um, there's a movie in the uh, 70s, I think it was late 70s, um, called uh, uh, When a Stranger Calls. And it's a, kind of a scary movie. It's a movie about uh, a, a woman in the house. She's a babysitter, I think, and she keeps hearing this phone call. And this guy's like scary voices. A really cheap made movie. Scary voices saying things that making you know it's kind of making her nervous. Um, so she calls the police, and the police trace the phone call. And that famous line, the policeman comes to her on the phone and says, "The calls are coming from inside the house." That's exactly what is going on in Galatians two about Paul running into trouble with the most unlikely and unexpected of people. Not resistance from the outside, but resistance from the inside. Look at verse 11. When Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him face to face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision or Jewish. The rest of the Jews who also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before all of them, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as the Jews? Translation, Peter... Why are you being a hypocrite? If you're a Christian and you've been saved by Jesus, why are you pretending around your Jewish buddies that somehow you're better than these Gentiles, that yes, they don't know all that you know, and yes, they don't, haven't gotten as far as you've gotten in your faith, but they believe in the same Lord that you believe, and when you're around them, you act as if you're okay with their coming to Christ in their own Gentile way, but then when the Jews show up, you act as if you're holier than them. Shame on you. Peter, now listen, this is Paul, the nobody apostle. Back in chapter 1, he said, nobody heard of me. This is Paul. Nobody's heard of Paul before. He stands up to Peter. I mean, Peter's like the guy, right? He's the number one guy that was left in charge of the whole deal. And, and, and again, Peter was a person. I'm glad that the Bible tells on its own heroes. Paul says, and listen, Paul was not, shamed, was not you know, shy about telling his own sins. He knew he was not perfect. But in this instance, Peter was the one that was wrong. This message is so relevant to us today. Maybe not in the Jew-Gentile frame of mind, but when it comes to religion and non-religion, church and unchurch, when it comes to us against them, who's them? Well, there's a lot of them, aren't there? Now, I want to talk to y'all about this from two different vantage points before we close. Not that I see better than y'all. It's just my job to climb up these towers and look down at the earth through different, eye, different lens and try to see the way that everybody sees. So the reason this matters to you or should matter to you is because it impacts you personally. So I want to talk to y'all as your pastor for a minute and also as your preacher. 
Now you can imagine that pastor's a little softer. So let's go with pastor first because that deals with the inside of us and that's gonna lead into the outside, how we live outside um, in the world. So before we do that, I wanna read the rest of this chapter. This is Paul's defense to Peter, but also to us. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I have destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Here's what is so subtle a challenge for every Christian as we get more and more devoted and more determined to follow Jesus, which is obviously what we should do. There is always a temptation to add to our foundation, our foundation that's by faith alone through grace alone. There is a temptation to add to what makes us a Christian, what we lean on and depend on as a Christian. Well, we do this, and I don't do that. We give this, and we go there. We've accomplished this. We've ascended to this. We've obtained, and we've sacrificed. And over time, we begin to add to, well, I'm saved by faith alone, through grace alone, plus because I do this, and I've done that, and I've not done that. It's so subtle. And here's what's on the line. Your internal... Your internal security, not eternal, but how you feel. When you begin to justify yourself by anything other than Jesus' grace and your faith in his finished work, you risk the security, we risk the security that only comes from resting in Jesus. When we add to faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, we lose faith, we nullify grace, and we turn from Jesus in terms of where our hope is and where our confident rest. When we begin to lean on and turn to and justify ourselves by other things than God's grace, our faith in what Jesus has done and who Jesus is, we lose faith, we nullify grace, and we slowly turn from Jesus. You know why this is important for us in September of 2020? Because 2020 has, woohoo, been a ride. There's a lot going on in our country. It's impossible for us to remove our Americanness from our identity. It's who we are, and that's okay. On 9 11, we remember that there is an evil world. There's an evil world around us, and our place in this world is fragile, yet we do not fear. We do not panic. Because we believe the evil of this world will one day be judged that our place in Christ is not fragile at all. This world and every institution of this world gains followers and keeps followers on the basis of fear. 
You're going to hear this every day until the, the first week of November. If this does not happen, so much is on the line. Don't buy into that sensationalism. Christians, are we saved or not? Are we eternally secure or are we not? And regardless of what may happen or not happen in this world, those things are not impacted or improved. Is verse 20 true about us? Can we say we've been crucified with Christ, yet we no longer live? Christ lives in us. That means the things you think you need to live by, the right person in office, the right circumstances in your life, the right perfect things going on in your family, the right health scenario, the right financial scenario, the things that you think give you a pulse, you have crucified those things. I know you care about them still, and you've still got to do what you've got to do. That's okay. But you have crucified those things. And what keeps you alive, and what keeps your heart beating, and what wakes you up every day is the finished work and the resurrection power of Jesus. And regardless of what else happens to you, what you do or what you don't do, Jesus is who keeps you alive, and Jesus is going to take care of you. That is the hope of a Christian. Our faith in Christ saves us. Faith is a confession and an admission that we cannot be saved on our own. We are unstable and unrighteous in and of ourselves, in and of this world. We cannot be tempted to once again put our faith or rely on anyone or anything else. And that leads me to the preacher part. There is a tendency in religion. There is a tendency in religion in all of us to marginalize, to disqualify and distance ourselves from those who are different than us. Those who don't see eye to eye with us. Those that we consider less right than us. There's a notion within us to only show our Christianness to those who are already Christians. There's a temptation to look for things that might excuse us from being Christ-like in regards to those not in Christ. This is also important in an election season, isn't it? This ideology could not be more unchristian. Whatever good is about us, whatever redeeming, whatever's redeeming about us, whatever comes, whatever is righteous about us comes from Jesus. Even if we have that quality before you became a Christian, that's a gift from God. So this perspective causes us to never look at anyone or feel better or righteous, more righteous than them, but reminds us the same grace that saved us is also sufficient for them. To act as if our behavior makes us better or makes us more saved is to remove ourselves from Jesus, and that is dangerous. This isn't to de-emphasize righteous living. This is to emphasize that there is no righteous living apart from Jesus. We don't teach our way, our traditions, our cultures, our politics. We preach Jesus. If there yet remains things that we don't agree with, we just have to trust that grace will cover and correct them just as it continues to do for us. This isn't to make anybody feel bad about their religious heritage. Paul was super passionate about his religious heritage. But he was also aware that it might get in the way of what he was more passionate about, winning people to Jesus. We must not forget the heart of evangelism is two things. Embracing people and engaging with people. People are not science projects. 
and they're not lab rats. No one likes to get shots. So we don't take our faith to people as if there's something wrong with them, as if we're bringing them something that if they don't take it, they're not even worth our conversation or our time. We take the gospel to people, embracing them for who they are, engaging with them as they are, because we believe it's worth the effort. Being good to, being unconditionally good and loving to people based on God's universal goodness and love for us all. That's what drives us. You see, Paul opposed Peter because to Paul, there was no room for indifference, hostility, or animosity towards anyone for whom Christ died, for whom a home in heaven could possibly await. That's the only way we'll ever win people to Jesus. We've got to get over things that grace can cover. Change may be needed, but don't you think God is up for the challenge? So let's let God be God and let's be his people, his loving and good people. Let's not nullify the grace of God. If it saved us, it can save them. And may we never present a gospel that suggests any, anything else saved us or that no one else can be saved but us. We know better. Paul writes this letter looking back to this contention when this contention began while, of course, being in the middle of a contentious moment. Later, after this letter was written, Paul was called back to Jerusalem in the middle of a raging debate about this matter, about the churches that had been planted in Galatia, and Paul was being questioned for what he taught them. Paul stood up once again to defend himself, preaching much of what he wrote in this letter, but Paul was not really convincing anybody. And who rose to Paul's defense? None other than his old friend Peter. This is what Peter says after this letter was written when he's on trial in, 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 in Jerusalem. When Paul is dismissed, Peter says, God knows my heart, acknowledging them, by, men and women, men and women, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the gospel for the first time. So God knows the heart, acknowledging them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Peter learned his lesson. He came to defend Paul on the basis of what the heart of the gospel is all about. The grace of Jesus Christ saves us and transforms us from the inside out. Nothing we've done disqualifies us and nothing we do justifies us. It's only what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. Our salvation rests secure in Christ alone. So may this be our story. May this be our song. Neither our heart nor our world can find help through any other way. So much is on the line. So much was on the line in Galatians 2. So much remains on the line. So let's let God do that work in our heart so that he might use us to do the same work in our world. Let me pray for you.
Father, I love you. Thank you so much for the work you've done in my heart. But Lord, I still need you to humble me. I still need you to remind me that it's by grace and grace alone that I'm saved. Lord, I still need every day to make a confession of faith in you because only by your finished work is my salvation secure. Lord, I put my own internal security, my own emotions on the line every day when I turn from, something, for I turn from you to something else. God, I pray that you would move in this house today and I pray you would encourage somebody that maybe that they've, just, they've tried to add to the foundation. They've added, to thing, added things to their foundation and that has took their faith out of you and that's what took them away from you. And it's made them more unstable and made them more insecure. Lord, help them to come today and realize that Jesus is the solid rock. Jesus is the firm foundation and Jesus is enough for them. And that their life has been crucified and you have given them a resurrection life. But Lord, also remind us that this is our message to the world. And if we don't preach this message to the world, that there are so many other things competing for their affection and attention. Help us not to disqualify or distance from those that are different than us. Help us to move towards, embrace, and engage to let the world know the same grace that has saved us can save anybody. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.